What's the allure of the gang for a, a young man? Oh, just money, power, and women. That's, that's what I mean. That's what it is: money, power, and women, and fun. And they go out, you party, you know, and then for recognition, you know. But who? Don't, everyone likes power. You're listening to Escape from Inglewood, Episode 2. I'm your host, Ryan Warner. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Now, at the end of last episode, we watched Tony Davis, a high school junior at the time, lose in the state finals, suffering his first loss in over eight years. But even with that loss, Tony was still one of the most recruited wrestlers in the state. Here's University of Illinois head coach Mark Johnson. I was on Tony's doorstep the first day that recruiting could could happen. He was a star in high school, so you know we we usually got the best kids in the state of Illinois. We, most every year we got the outstanding wrestler of the state, and uh, he was along that line. But after Coach Johnson looked into Tony's records, he was forced to move on. Ever since Tony's freshman year. Both his academics and his attendance had been in steady decline. I know toward, toward that uh, junior year, I was calling so much records at, at Mount Carmel. I was missing school, you know, not, you know, I had a lot of dress code violations. I was, wasn't taking, taking advantage of the opportunities I should have been taking care of. I was young. I was immature. I was, I can't blame the coaches. I can't blame my teammates. I had some great coaches, great teammates. I was just making some bad decisions. But the bigger issue was that, Tony didn't see himself as college material. I had desires to go to college, but I didn't. I never thought I was I was capable capable of going to going to college. No one in my family ever went to college, so it's like, yeah, I want to do it, but is this a realistic goal? Can this really happen? And to make things worse, ever since Tony's freshman year, unbeknownst to the wrestling world, he had gotten more involved with the streets. I just got sidetracked, like most people would, like, and I started hanging in the streets and. You know, my brother was a big time, you know, uh, big time kingpin, you know, in, in, in Chicago stars. You know, as, as my older brother, I started following his footsteps. Tony's older brother was Michael Davis. See, my brother was, uh, Mike was a very smart, smart man, but he was also a very, you know, um, he was a troubled child growing up. He stayed in trouble, stayed out of jail. But, you know, to me, it was my big brother. I looked up to him. Uh, he always showed me love and respect, you know, and. But I always wanted to be like him in some kind of way because, you know, he's, he's, he's my older brother. On the streets, Tony's older brother, Michael, gave Tony protection. It was just word on the street that this is Michael's, Davis brothers. He's quiet. Don't fuck with him. If you do, there's consequences. Following in his older brother's footsteps, Tony joined one of the largest and most organized gangs in the city. I heard that Tony had uh, joined the gang, and I was like, no, this is not going to work. You're hearing from Tony's mom. I had to stop it because I know if he kept on going, it would lead him into a different direction. And that direction, I didn't want him to go. But the warning fell on deaf ears. Tony joined the Black Disciples, an organization that had two purposes, sell drugs and defend its turf through whatever means necessary. Tony's job was the former. Um, and it became easy money, easy lifestyle, so... I think um, I got out, I got sidetracked through that. You know, at the time, wrestling wasn't bringing me no money. I wanted some new shoes. I like I like nice clothes. I like want to, you know, um, that's what the, the neighborhood was offering. It was how did that, they offer that? Oh, uh, just you know, you, you had to become a, you know, 
a street a street dis- um, distributor distributor that's what they call it right <laughs> we call it what the other people call it drug dealer a street a street distributor I grew up with nothing so having a hundred dollars in my pocket was real money to me you know but then you times that by twenty and you got two thousand three thousand you're like damn that's a lot of money at that age as his obsession with the streets grew Tony showed off his newfound talents to his high school teammate and best friend T.J. Williams. Well, Tony would come to school sometimes and, you know, and show me a big wad of money. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, where you get that, you know? Oh, man, you know, just doing doing things. Well, I work at Burger King. <laughs> I don't make that much money. But, you know, he, 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 he chose that street life and it's dangerous. You can make some good money fast. I wouldn't say good money, but you can make some money real fast. But then next week you can be shot and you can be robbed or, you know, you can, somebody can kill you or your family because you might owe them money or they think you got extra money hiding somewhere. I always told Tony, like, hey, man, you got to stop, man. This don't look good because we know the outcome of these situations because we see it. By February of 1995, Tony's life continued to spiral. He was a junior in high school and was coming off his loss to Reggie Wright. And in the immediate weeks following that loss, Tony stopped going to Mount Carmel altogether. I gave those guys a run for their money. I was a headache. After another week passed without Tony going to class, Mount Carmel decided to expel Tony. I got a letter in the mail saying, we're not having you come back to Mount Carmel. The next day at Mount Carmel, T.J. Williams heard the news. When you left Mount Carmel, I was I was hurt. I feel like I lost my best friend, right? It was like, I don't get to see him every day. I don't get to hear the stories. I don't get to hear the jokes. I don't get to hear, you know, see a smile or, hey, man, that's Tony right there, you know? And it was, I felt kind of empty. It's like, I gotta, gotta do this with uh, my other teammates. And, and no disrespect to them, but it was, like I said, Tony and I, we, you know, thick and thin. And I was worried, like, when I get a phone call of saying, hey, they found Tony. Uh, Tony got caught with this, or he's in jail, or they shot him up, or somebody hung him, or somebody cut his body up. And I was like, man, like when you're, when you're at school, I can kind of help protect you. You know, but when you're not here, it's like, I don't know what's going on. After being expelled from Mount Carmel, Tony was forced to enroll in the local public school, Inglewood High. And on his first day, he stepped through the metal detectors and the private school life he had known for the last three years was over. Ingle was a public school, it was a local school, a lot of drugs, a lot of gangs, a lot of violence. I mean, I'm making sure no book is hitting me in the back of my head. I'm making sure when I go down the hallway, no one's going to kick me in my back. It's, it's the grind, you know. His brother Will, who was just a freshman at the time, remembers Tony's reaction from going from one of the top schools in the city to one of the worst. Inglewood, it was more like him back in the world that he was trying to leave in the first place. Like, his his thing was like, I'm trying to get out of this neighborhood. I'm trying to move away from all this and get, get past all this. But like, now I'm being pushed back to something that I was trying to get out of the whole time, you know? And then Tony had goals. He was like, man, I want to get out of this neighborhood. And he knew wrestling was something he was good at. But in the fall of 1995, Tony's senior year, he received more bad news. The IHSA, which is the governing body for wrestling in Illinois, declared Tony ineligible to compete. When you leave a Catholic school and go to a private school because they take religion classes, they didn't transfer over. 
So then I was I became ineligible to wrestle. The number one recruit in the state of Illinois was officially barred from stepping onto a mat. I mean, my senior year, I didn't wrestle at all. I didn't touch the mat my senior year. Shortly after, Tony dropped out of high school altogether. That's when I was really, really in, into the streets. And um, they call it living a vida loca, living a crazy life. And I explained, you know, I was living a crazy life. Despite protests from his mom. I was telling him, no, your grades are too good. I think you need to go on to college. Tony refused to return to high school and doubled down on the streets. What's the allure of the gang for a, a young man? Oh, just money, power, and women. That's, that's what I mean. That's what it is: money, power, and women, and fun. And then go out, party, you know. And then for recognition, you know. But who? Don't, everyone likes power, you know. So we got power, and and have people do what you say, and do you can do what you want, and go where you want. You know, it's all for power. Just a few months prior. Tony was worried about dress code violations at Mount Carmel. But now, as a member of a street organization, he was familiarizing himself with a new set of rules. Here's Tony's younger brother, William Davis. They give you a page of laws and they say, okay, these are the laws, you read the laws, and you gotta remember the laws, you gotta be able to recite the laws, you gotta know them by heart. In the mid-1990s, Chicago's gangs still displayed a rigid hierarchy and had strictly enforced laws. Failure to follow those laws had real consequences. For example, like if a gang member stole something from somebody's house, for example, they would take that person and like break that person's arm. Like that person would get their arm broken. Like they would put bend their arm over a gate and break their arm. And if a more serious violation occurred, the gang's response was also more violent. There could be like no cover up violations where like basically like you can't cover your face or anything like that. And then, like, you have, like, maybe three people on one person. If you cover up your, your face or something like that, or whatever the case may be, then you gotta, they might extend the time for another 10 minutes because you covered up during that time frame. These laws may seem draconian, but they help keep Inglewood in a state of balance. But then a war broke out between two of the largest gangs in the city. And that structure began to erode. What was supposed to be a lasting truce between rival Chicago gangs is a shambles tonight. Rumors spread of an all-out gang war. The motive? Drug turf. Authorities were able- Yeah, everyone's fighting for territory. Back then, it was, it was huge. Gangs were everywhere, man. It was mainly gangster disciples and black disciples, though. On one side of the stoplight is one gang, and on the other side of the stoplight is the other gang. So that, there used to be shootouts all the time, and fights, and wars. Gangs was saying, this is, this is my turf. So a lot of people was getting killed over uh, turfs. There have been more than 500 homicides so far in Chicago this year, far exceeding the number last year at this time. As a member of an organization, Tony was a prime target for attacks. If you guys get into war, it could be um, someone creeping in, lurking through the alleys, you know, trying to come to your territory and catch someone not paying attention or catching relaxing, relaxing and boom. Your life is over. At the height of the war between the Black Disciples and the Gangster Disciples, Tony was as familiar with gang territory markings as he was with the names of the streets in his neighborhood. Survival depended on it. And, you know, each organization have signs, but they, have, they might have a couple couple signs listed with that organization. So, But you learn, yeah, you learn to, they come to your, ter- they come to your territory and airbrush their little reflection, let them know, hey, we've been here. That's just pretty much let them know, that, hey, we're in your area, be aware. For Tony, 
Every day was a battle just to stay alive. If you're living on the edge, you gotta, at some point, you gonna, something's going to happen. At some point, it's going to catch up with you. That's, that's one thing. That's the from what I experienced. At some point, if you're not doing the things the right way, you're living the wrong way. At some point, it's going to catch up to you. And in June 1996, when Tony should have been celebrating his high school graduation, his day finally came. He was grilling out with other members of the Black Disciples when a car full of rival gang members slowly pulled up. Yeah, just at a, at a park. Um, people was out um, at a barbecue. Someone drove by, did drive by shooting. Got shot twice, didn't even know about it until I got home. A few minutes later, Tony came running through the door. Yeah, I went home, walked in the house. Mom, mom said, hey, your pants are wet. I turned around, blood all over the place. Despite being shot in two different places, Tony survived the attack and avoided becoming one of the 796 homicides that would take place in Chicago that year. But later that summer, he was hit with a situation that he couldn't escape. Tony's older brother was arrested on drug charges and sentenced to prison. Tony had to be about... Six, sixteen, seventeen years old when his brother went to jail. I just remember we all sat down crying and you know hurt, confused, you know don't have any money to bond him out. Just just being lost. Tony's brother going to prison left a void in the Davis household. And to bring everyone's spirits up, his mom Lolitha threw a party. So I used to get parties on the weekends. I used to uh, rent a uh, party in my basement, collect a little, a little money on the side. And, uh, How would you collect money? You charge them at the door. You might charge them a dollar at the door, maybe $2 at the door, dollar for a drink, you know, stuff like that. And one time, one of the other gangster boys hauled off and slapped me. Tony got mad. We had a pistol in our house because we had to protect ourselves, you know what I'm saying? And Tony ran up there to get the pistol. And the guy ran out the out the out of the out of the house and Tony went chasing after. While Tony never found the guy, he assumed the role of man of the house and continued on with his street life. Later that summer, Tony was walking down a street in Inglewood when his life was changed forever. It was a hot July night, and as Tony was nearing his house, a mob of guys emerged from the shadow and jumped Tony. It was probably ten. It was a lot. Ten on one. Yeah, put me in full Nelson. And it was it was it was a variant. And I was pretty beat up, pretty bad. Tony was helpless against ten guys, and for minutes. The beating continued. That was when I was really able to see the, the, the near-death experience. You know, you, you actually could see, like, your body's, like, going out of it. Uh, that's, I mean, because it's constantly pounding and your head getting pounded. I mean, so it's like, you know, you really feel yourself go. Tony was left laying on the street, bleeding and unconscious. After he didn't come home that night, his mom was relieved when the hospital called and said that Tony was alive. But when she entered his room, Lolita could hardly recognize Tony. His jaw had been broken in five places and was wired shut. Man, I was in tears. Now that's the time that I, my children see me cry. 
I was really, really in tear to see my child hurt like that. You know what I'm saying? To see you, you try to protect your child and then somebody tries to hurt them. Yeah, it was, it was a hurting feeling to see my baby like that. It was. It's just, that's just something, things you do just don't, you don't never forget. His face was just so big and they had to wire his mouth down. Excuse me, God, I wanted that boy dead for what he did to my child, and I went out looking for him. As Lolita searched for the man who had beaten up her son, Tony called his old friend, T.J. Williams. Tony called me. He would say, hey, come visit me in the hospital. Like, visit you? And I, Why would I go to the hospital to visit you? Well, you just need to come visit me. Well, what happened? Well, I got beat up, and they wired my mouth shut. I'm like, why, why, why does somebody beat you up, man? Tell me. So he was like, well, just come up here. And I wouldn't because I was scared. I'd go up there and they see me going in the hospital, you know, just thinking like somebody randomly see me. That's his friend. You know, he he got the money or whatever, you know. So I, you know, and then his girlfriend would call me back at the time. Hey, Tony, want you to send, uh, tell Tony I can't come up there. You know, and I felt bad because he kept calling me. Hey, Tony, I can't come. Tell him I can't come. Tell him I'll see him when he gets out. Weeks after the beating, Tony was still at St. Bernard's Hospital. And when you're in the hospital afterwards, like, what are you, what are you thinking afterwards? Oh, man, thinking like, this is, this, this is probably my last, this is my warning. I mean, what a warning. You have had all these other, this is the last warning. What are you going to do? Finally... Four weeks after being admitted, in early August, Tony was released from St. Bernard's Hospital and returned to the family home in Inglewood. His younger brother, Will, hadn't seen Tony since the beating. And he came home, and I mean, his face was like a blowfish. Like, his face was so big. So big. And I remember, like, we saying, hey, Tony, and, like, talking. He could only talk, like, from the bottom, his bottom lip. He went inside the house. And when he went to the house, me and my brother went to the, I think we were on the front porch. And we, like, was crying. And we, like, held each other. When most of his former teammates were heading off to college, Tony was at rock bottom. I just remember him looking defeated a lot and being like, man, I can't believe that my jaw broken. I can't believe I'm in this situation and I got to drink from a straw. You know, he vocalized that a lot. And so one day, he picked up the phone and called his old Harvey Twisters coach, Quint Harrell. When he called me, I didn't even know it was him because his mouth was wired shut. So I'm, you know, I was about to hang up the phone. And uh, I could could barely understand what he was saying. And then uh, I thought somebody was making a prank call. and then I said, is this Tony? And he, uh, he said, yeah. And I said, uh, what's wrong with you? And then so as I listened closely, I realized that he had gotten jumped and his mouth was wired shut. I don't, I don't know exactly what happened, but I, all I know is when I talked to him, I said, you know, you ready to make some changes? He's like, yeah. I said, okay, well, I'm going to see if I can get you to school. When Tony made that call to Coach Quint, he had been off the mats for over 13 months. And during that time, his old high school teammate, T.J. Williams, had grown into the number one recruit in the state. But academic issues were forcing T.J. to go the junior college route. Most predicted that T.J. would end up at Iowa Central Community College. 
Here's the head coach, Mark Ostrander. TJ was supposed to come in on a flight. In those days, the school didn't give you recruiting budgets. So I paid for an airline ticket for TJ to come out and visit Iowa Central. But TJ had to change a heart and committed to another college, leaving Coach Ostrander standing at the Des Moines airport with a letter of intent in hand. So I, I was a little worried, um, a little ticked off. He called Coach Quint in Chicago. And I said, I need a hundred and, uh, back then it would be a 134-pounder is what I was looking for. And uh, do you have any kids out there that could, you know, compete at junior college level? So anyway, Quint says, well, there's a kid in Chicago. And I said, uh, what's his name? And he said, Tony Davis. And I go, what if I drive out there Monday? Do you think we could find him? He goes, well, we can try. There's no guarantees. So I got up Monday morning at 6 in the morning and drove to Chicago. Somehow, we didn't have GPS back then. Somehow, I found where the Harvey Twisters is, where Quentin was. Quentin was running practice. I watched his wrestling practice for maybe a half hour. And he goes, I know where Tony's grandma lives. I know that. Let's go over and see if she knows where Tony's living now. Later that night, Tony was sitting at his house when he heard a knock on the door that would change everything. That's when God sent me an angel. It was Mark Ostrander. Tony's mom comes to the door. I walk into a house, um, sat down at the dining room table, uh, and Tony was sitting there. Something didn't quite look right. He 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 had a glass of water with the straw in it and Tony kind of has his head down and he kind of looks up at me and his face is all swollen and I introduced myself and I said hi and he just kind of shook his head and then I could see that he had his mouth wired shut so he couldn't talk and so I said to his mom what's going on and she goes well he had got jumped by some gang members so they beat him up left him in a dumpster so I sat down and I just basically started talking to Tony and his mom about Iowa Central, what we could do for him. And so, and Tony doesn't say anything. We can't talk. So it was kind of an odd recruiting visit. I knew the mom was going to run the show. For Tony's mom, this wasn't the first time that a wrestling coach had offered Tony a scholarship. We talked and then the coach came over. He said, well, look, I want to pay Tony to go to college. Really surprised me. I was like, don't get me wrong. This white man with this money. And I knew I wouldn't be able to get my, no matter how hard I tried, I knew I wouldn't be able to get my my kid to college. After an hour, Coach Ostrander left a letter of intent on Tony's table and drove back to Iowa. With the school year starting in two weeks, Tony had a choice. Stay in Inglewood and return to the streets or move to Iowa Central and give wrestling another shot. I knew I had to go. I knew that was the calling, and I knew it was time for me to go. And I was, I was, I was exhausted. I was, look, I was ready to look for something different. I was missing, I was missing wrestling. So um, when that opportunity presented itself, I just, I just took advantage of it. It was the best decision I ever made. That's when Tony Davis get his mojo back. After he signed with Iowa Central, Tony got his GED. And in late August 1996, he hugged his mom and said goodbye to Inglewood. He was headed six hours west 
to Iowa Central Community College. Thank you so much for listening to part two of Escape from Inglewood. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend and leave a review. Be sure to check out part three to see how Tony does in JUCO and where he ends up. And if you want more content, please consider joining our fan club at patreon.com and search Wrestling Changed My Life. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search Wrestling Changed My Life. A special thank you to our sponsor, Spartan Combat, who's currently running a special on custom team apparel for the freestyle and Greco season. Go to SpartanCombat.com to place your order. Escape from Inglewood was written, directed, and edited by me, Ryan Warner. Story consulting by the great Raleigh Peterkin. Original score by Gary Linelli. And business manager, Tanner Warner. A final thank you to Tony Davis and everyone we interviewed for this project.